Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Well, welcome back to another episode of Brazen Education. Today, we're going to be talking about policy, education, and student advocacy. And who better to talk to about these topics than Senator Andrea Hunley. Andrea, thank you so much for being on Brazen Education today. It's so great to be with you. I'm really excited to chat. Well, let's get right into it. When I first met you, you were a principal at um, CFI School 2, and now you are one of the people that represents um, the state of Indiana when it comes to laws, when it comes to legislation. So can you talk to us a little bit about what um, drew you to transition from being in the school setting um, to the state house? Oh, that's a great question. Do you ever feel like you see someone do something and you think to yourself, man, if I were in charge, I would do it differently. Man, if I were in charge, I would do it better. Well, I was just crazy enough to think that way. And so what happened was I love being a teacher, love, love, love being a teacher. And, um, but then there were certain things around the school that I thought, man, if I were in charge, if I were principal, I would do it differently. So then I became a principal. And then as a principal, I kept looking around at things like our state policies, like money for guidance counselors, money for social workers, money for school nurses, money to pay teachers, right? The teacher shortage, to make sure that our students have high quality science materials. And I kept thinking, man, if I were in charge, I would do it differently. And then I realized that there was an opportunity for me to do that. And that was to run for the people that make the policy, right? To run for a seat in a policy making position. And so I decided to run for state Senate. Now, I make it sound like it was just a really easy leap, like, oh, one morning I woke up and decided this. It didn't work that way. You know, I've really been interested in um, policy for a long time, and I've taken a lot of, you know, leadership training courses and that sort of thing and got involved in great organizations like Hoosier Women Forward that helped me really believe that I could take this next step so that when the time um, presented itself to me, I was ready to do it. But but that's really why I made this shift from being, uh, you know, an educator, from being a school principal to being now in a seat where I get to wear a policy making hat. I think about the school setting and when I first got into education, I just wanted to close my door and teach. I didn't care about anything that was happening, even sometimes in within the building or outside. And as I got more mature and being an educator, I'm like, oh, this policy is impacting this thing or we don't have school counselors in the elementary setting because of funding. Uh, so how did you kind of make that connection between um, being an educator, like policy is really important. And maybe even how did you as a principal try to get your, even your own staff, like to understand like the importance of policy, um, even if you're still in the classroom? I mean, honestly, so much is, um, is, feeling, is feeling frustrated when those systems aren't working, right? And, um, and so really what happened was after Parkland, after the Parkland High School shooting, uh, one of my students, she was 14 years old at the time, she led a walkout where the students walked out of the school building, they marched through downtown and they did a die-in at the American Legion Mall where they read off the names of every student who um, had been killed in that, in that you know, massacre in Parkland. And as I was standing there listening to these names being read, you know, watching around downtown, making sure that these students who were, you know, having a right of free speech were protected, right, in that moment, because it's also scary when they, you know, leave the building and do this. I was standing there thinking, wow, if Carly at 14 is standing up to use her voice to fight the power to say we have to be doing better for kids, then why am I not doing that? And that was really that, like, catalyst moment for me when I realized, like, okay, I need to be doing more. Um, and really got serious about making that that shift. And in that moment too, I also started to see all these connections, right? I saw the connection between policy and student safety. And I started to see the connection between policy and student meals. Like are all of our kids able to eat lunch every day? I started to see the connections between policy and things that we don't control inside of the school, like housing, right? Like are all, do all of our families have stable housing? 
and workforce development are, do they have the ability to get a job that will pay a living wage so that they then can support their family so that when their child does come to school, that they have um, you know, that, that base of support that they need to even be able to learn. Right? I just really started to see all of those connections and the ways that we can make changes, um, big changes and small changes, you know, at the policy level to help families. As a senator, what um, education policies do you feel maybe the most passionate about and what policies based on your experience as an educator that you are really hoping to change, expand, update? I know that can be a very wide, large, open-ended question, but I feel as like you said, as an educator, there are things that are like, why is this the way that it is? Uh, so what are those, what are those burning things for you? So the burning education policies for me are yes. Just yes, all of them. Like, <laughs> like that would be the easiest answer because it's really true. I care so deeply about our student to um, social worker ratio that we have in our school buildings. I mean, in Indiana, it's like 700 students to one person and that's just not adequate. I mean, we wonder why we have this mental health crisis with you know young adults. This is why um, it's because we're not providing them with enough support. So I'm really passionate about policy in that area. Um, I'm very passionate about policy around accountability. I want to make sure that when we are giving dollars to schools, regardless of type, whether they're public, private, charter, you know, whatever type of school they are, I want to make sure that we're holding schools accountable to taxpayer dollars. You know, these are our hard-earned dollars that are going in, right? So are they doing right by kids? Are they producing outcomes? Are they spending their, um, their dollars in a way that really is making sure that we're growing the next generation of leaders. I'm very passionate about that. I am, you know, I'm also um, passionate about legislation that can increase teacher access to training around reading. I mean, you and I are lovers of, of reading, right? We understand yes. the importance of literature and the importance of, um, you know, how books open up worlds for kids. And so I want to make sure that every kid has a strong reading foundation um, you know, and right now in Indiana, uh, the percentage of our black males that are meeting proficiency is a, is abysmal. I mean, it is just abysmal. And so we need to make sure that we are really looking at that and making sure that we're, you know, giving all the support that we can to teachers so that they can help support kids. I want to talk a little bit more about accountability because I know um, being a former school administrator as well, when you say the word accountability, it's like teachers kind of bristle a little bit. And but accountability goes so many ways. It's accountable to our students, accountable to your colleagues, accountable to your school administrator, account accountability to our taxpayers. Uh, because at the end of the day, the taxpayers are paying in, hoping that everything's going well. Um, what what type of legislation kind of helps with the accountability of schools not performing well? And the reason I ask this question is there's always talk around, well, if there's a charter school that open, it needs to be closed. But you can also argue the same thing for maybe a traditional public school that may be having the same issue or even maybe there is a private school that might be getting voucher dollars may be having the same issue. So and then also there's the understanding of like what can the state house do? So there are limits mm -hmm. to that. So when it comes to accountability, uh, what do you feel are the levers that really helps motivate like appropriate accountability for people to be like, oh, if we don't do this, this will impact us. So we're going to make this a focus. Yeah, I mean, I think that a big piece when we talk about accountability is that we first have to make sure we have a level playing field, right? That everybody is playing by the same rules, um, you know, because we've got some school types that, you know, accept every single child that walks in the door, whether that child has significant special needs, whether they are an English language learner, whether they have a family that, you know, has a lot of zeros in their paycheck or whether they have a family that has no paycheck at all, right? So we have some school types that, that must accept every single child and they love to accept every single child. And then we have other school types that can discriminate, right? That, that can select their students, um, that can kick students out if they are a behavior problem that can say, we don't provide those types of services here. I'm sorry, your child's special needs can't be met by us. Um, you know, and so when we have different sets of rules, right, then it's really hard to say, let's look at the reading scores between school types, right? That then we're not comparing apples to apples at all. And so I think that, that one way that we can hold folks accountable um, is that if you're taking state dollars, you need to be accountable to families, all families. And that means that, you know, 
every family is, we are we are paying our taxes in um, should be able to access every school type, and that's just not the case right now. Um, so I think that you know enrollment is is one piece for sure. Um, I think that another is when we look at um, access to programs, right? I want to I want schools to be accountable to making sure that children get rich experiences. So can you access the arts and music and a world language and athletic teams? You know, can you access that? Um, you know, and is your school attempting to provide enriching experiences? You know, some of these schools, I mean, you've got places that have everything from a chess club to a to a math team to lacrosse to, you know, all of these things, right, that they're doing. And then we have other schools that you know, are spending their dollars in a different way that doesn't really um, enrich students and provide them with a variety of experiences, right? And so we need to hold schools accountable to allowing for educating the whole child and creating a well-rounded experience, right? That's another way. Um, and then, of course, with teacher outcomes. Like, I want to know how many teachers in a building are rated highly effective. And do you even have a program to evaluate teachers? Because right now, not every school type in the state even has to have a teacher evaluation program. And to me, that's terrifying. As a parent, I want to know how my kids' teachers are doing, and I want to know how they're doing based on a rubric, you know, that their um, a school administrator or another person who's trained in their building is making sure that they are high quality and that we have a shared definition for what it means to be high quality teacher. Um, I also think that we need to hold schools accountable for hiring qualified teachers. And that's the other piece is that we don't. And so there are certain school types that can give a lot of waivers or hire folks that don't have a teaching degree or hire folks that, um, you know, have less than four years of college education who are then, you know, working with, um, working with students on really important concepts when they themselves don't have a full understanding. Um, you know, that that's really problematic. I think that in some ways, we've opened up doors to be really creative around teacher type and who can be a teacher. You know, now if you, you know, were a scientist that was working in the field for 10 years and you want to come and give back by being a middle school biology teacher, you know, we now have pathways in Indiana where folks can do that, right? Um, which I think is wonderful. At the same time, I think that there's some abuse of those um, privileges that we have too. Mm -hmm. And you are talking about the adjunct, uh, how if you are like a college professor and that you can take that, are you talking about that particular pathway? So, so there's the adjunct pathway and then there's, um, and then there's some of the, them are transition to teach pathways, which are also great. Um, but then there are, there's actually no way for us right now in terms of accountability at the state level, we do not have schools or school districts report to us um, any more the percentage of their teachers that hold a teaching license. Not every school type has to do that. And so that is of, of grave concern to me when it comes to accountability. And I appreciate how you tackle the topic because a lot of times when we talk about accountability, people go to iLearn, they'll go to iRead, which we all know that's part of the beast of accountability. But uh, to that, to your point about that level playing field, when you have um, a lot of schools, you may have a student that's gone year to year and every year their teacher is a first year teacher. And mm -hmm. that first year teacher may not have gone to school to done teaching. And they may be doing like a summer class and that's all the education they got. So they're learning on the job with you. Uh, so I do uh, appreciate you giving um, the audience a well-rounded perspective of like, this is the reality of schools and the fact that everyone that's in front of the students is not licensed. And I think you and I both know like the license isn't the end all be all because you had to be licensed and <laughs> still produce results. But in some cases, that's not even the bare minimum in some places. And I think um, both of us as being parents, that is of concern when it's like, are you are you at least licensed? <laughs> Have you been in school to get the appropriate training? Um, so I, I do agree with those points. Earlier, you mentioned um, being inspired to go into 
you know, politics based on your students. Um, and at the time I was a literacy coach um, when the Parkland um, incident happened, I was a literacy coach and high school students um, walked out of Christmas attics, um, you know, to protest what happened. And I, I remember students talking about, well, what else can we do? And so thinking about students, uh, many times we'll say we're getting ready for our, the future leader here, we're preparing you to be leaders. But when I think about um, different um, youth that I follow online, who are so young and so brave because they, there has to be some bravery there. They're getting out there and doing things. So what type of opportunities are even available um, that you know of and that students um, can do to say, hey, I don't know if I wanna be in politics. I don't know if I wanna do political science, but I wanna make a change. Maybe it's the light <laughs> that's not working or the potholes in the street or I'm in a food desert. How can students really get involved uh, into like this arena of making sure we have a just world and a just society and equitable outcomes for all people in all areas? I know that was like a big loaded question, but. No, it's so great because this is exactly what's giving me hope. I mean, this is what's giving me hope is the fact that we're not waiting on a future generation to come help us and save us. They're doing it now. Like mm -hmm. our young people are doing these things now. I mean, that's what, you know, we have, we have Greta Thunberg, which is amazing. Right. And, you know, she's, you know, this leading environmentalist who started so young and has made incredible waves. And I think that she's just inspiring, um, you know, Malala, you know, these people who are young, who, um, you know, who are really inspiring our our young people to see their own power and their own value. Um, and so a couple of things right now, you know, here in Marion County, we have the Marion County's prosecutor's office has their um, their NDP fellowship that they did um, or Indy Youth Violence Fellowship, Youth Violence Prevention, um, that was great. So that's, you know, a group of um, young, young people, I think eighth grade and up who are together over the summer and they are doing some um, some work around policy and practices, meeting with lawmakers, meeting with folks around the community. Um, we have uh, folks, you know, if, if people are interested in the environment, you know, Keep Indianapolis Beautiful has their, um, has their tree program, which I think is an excellent opportunity for young people to get involved um, and to really get their hands on experience and helping to create change, you know, right now. Um, I think that that is key. We have um, the NDPs fellows, you know, which is really important. Uh, you know, there are so many great groups around town that, that if there is a cause someone is passionate about, they can definitely find um, an area to be involved in now. We also um, have our PAGE program for people who are interested in politics. And anyone sixth grade and up in the whole state of Indiana uh, can take one day off of school each year and come and serve as a PAGE in the state Senate or in the House. And they can, um, they volunteer for the day. They get to learn a bit about the process of how a bill is passed. They get to argue a mock bill. Um, there are usually, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 um, students a day that come to do this at the state house when we are in session. And I think that that's a great opportunity to get a behind the scenes look and then start building relationships too. Well, students who are listening or uh, that will listen to the playback if they're not listening live, um, this is a great, great opportunity. And many students, um, if they were in school during fourth grade, that's typically when students go down to the state house. Some of those students actually miss even the opportunity, not maybe to do the page thing, but even to take the field trip to the state house um, to see like what actually happens down there. So for students who may have missed those opportunities to go to the state house, this is an opportunity for you to definitely get involved or just to get your toes wet or to see, you know, what uh, you're interested in. So if you have an interest um, in Indianapolis, there's probably a, a group <laughs> organization um, for that. There are so, um, so, so many things that people can uh, get involved with. So I wanna ask you about some things that are currently um, been in the media. Uh, one of the things that's been in the media a lot, books. <laughs> And uh, you and I both love books. We love to read. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's a, I feel like there's a bookcase behind you. There's a bookcase behind me. We just love it, love it, love it. And right now there's um, this, um, there's like, I don't want to say it's two sides, but it seems like two sides. There are people who feel that there are some books that must be removed um, from the view of children. And there are other people that are like, 
Well, if, you, if the child doesn't like the book, you don't like the book, you don't have to check it out. Uh, when it comes to the state house or maybe even your philosophy as an educator, how do you feel that people should approach this, this topic and these real situations? And where do you think we're missing the boat in this argument about for and against removing um, books? And for people who are not local, um, yeah, John Green, um, who is a award-winning author um, of The Fault in Our Stars and many other books. He um, lives in Indiana and his books were, were removed from a teen section of the, the Hamilton East Public Library, moved to the adult section. His book did get moved back after there was all this media coverage, but all the hundreds of other books did not get moved back. And he has other books that are still in the adult section. Um, so um, to give everyone some context to this question and why we're here debating this here in, in Indiana. Yes, well, you know, books help build power, right? Mm -hmm. They help to create windows to new worlds. They help create mirrors of our own. And they also create, as we like to say, sliding doors, right? You've heard this metaphor, right? These sliding doors that allow us to walk through and walk out and really see and feel and live in someone else's world. They help us to learn empathy, right? When we are in proximity to folks that are different from us, we can start to understand them a bit better. Um, you know, I was an English teacher, so I am incredibly passionate about access to books. And, you know, from my own experience, I had some students who were ready for certain content for certain topics and some students who weren't. I had some families who were ready for certain content or concepts to be introduced to their children and some that weren't. But we were able to handle that in the environment of our own community. We don't need people from outside coming in saying this book is bad for everyone, right? These should be you know, individual choices made with individual kids, individual families with their teachers that know them. And just because a book is not deemed appropriate for one child doesn't mean it's not appropriate for all children, right? And so I think that what we have to be careful about is being afraid to allow other people to make choices. Mm. And we shouldn't take choice away from anybody, mm. right? This is the United States of America. Like We are not the country that bans books and burns books and tells people what they can and cannot do. Like We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we can't be brave and bold if we can't be willing to accept stories that may be different from ours and accept con content and concepts that may be different from what we are used to. And so having access to diverse literature is critical to maintaining open minds. And I think that that's really the bottom line. And we know what types of books are the most likely to be banned. I mean, we know this, that they, that they are books that contain LGBTQ content. They are books that contain content that has to do with the black experience in the United States. Um, you know, these are the books that are most likely to be removed from these shelves. So you've heard of helicopter parents, right? Oh yeah, I've been a helicopter parent in my life before, where I kind of hover, you know, around nope. my kids, want to make sure they're okay. Yes, okay. Then we've heard of the lawnmower parents, you know, who try to like, you know, just mow down any adversity that might be in their kids' way to make that like nice, clear path for them. Well, right now, what we have in Indiana and in some of our school districts are jackhammer parents, just trying to just completely, you know, destroy the foundation of public schools. And that is, that is worrisome. And we have to make sure that this vocal few of jackhammer parents do not get to speak for everybody else. And that's what's happening. And that's the, I don't even say interesting. It's a few people because based on all the media coverage, you feel like it's like all of these people. But when you really narrow down to like who's involved and who's saying these things, there are a few people that are like, oh, we'll get on this board or, oh, we will make this show or, oh, we're going to take one page out of a book and read it online and leave out all the other context. And it takes away from teachers um, doing their job of being professionals. It takes away from librarians doing their jobs of being professionals because, I mean, that's the educators that we want to see in classrooms that have gone to school, um, that's what they went to school uh, for. And to your point, we both have been English teachers. We have a plan, like you talk about that in, in college, about how do you deal with certain topics? Uh, so there's already a thing in place. And so I also feel that 
these jackhammer parents have neglected to find out what were the things in place to deal with this. Because most of the time, if I have a parent that says, my kid is not, I did a Tears of a Tiger by Sharon Draper. We read that book. And also, people forget, like, we're teaching stairs. We're just not talking about these cons. Yes, we're talking about what happened in the book, right? But we're also teaching standards. And because um, there's an accident based on underage drinking, a parent said to me, my kid can't read this. Um, I We don't want this our kid to be exposed to this. My, our kid's not mature enough. I had already had an assignment for this alternate thing for this kid to do. Um, the kid was fine. The kid was, and the rest of the class was just like, oh, so-and-so's reading another book. Like it wasn't this big deal. They still got to learn all the standards. They still did all the projects. And I think a lot of times, I don't know what some of these parents think happens in school if they say, I don't want my child to read this book because most of the time, in my experience, people just say, okay. <laughs> yeah, and we change it. We, we give an alternate assignment, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. absolutely true. You know, one thing that you said is you mentioned, you know, that people are, you know, getting elected to these boards, getting elected to this. And that is such a critical point. You know, I think that people, we really need to remind ourselves that you know one vote is one vote and that one vote carries a lot of power a lot of power especially here in the state of indiana especially in our communities where we're talking about school board elections where we're talking about um you know library board appointments where we're talking about you know even races like mine but you know the um you know when when the mayor uh, of zionsville when um mayor siren became mayor she won by less than 40 votes I, and so like, we have to remember that, um, you know, city councilors in Marion County this year, some of them, you know, won by less than 70 votes. Like these are small, small numbers that have a big, big impact on what then happens at the local level. I think we worry a lot about what's happening out in DC. Like that's nice for those people way out there, but the real change and the real policy work that impacts our day-to-day -day life happens in those local elections. And if you're not voting in your local elections, you, you should do that. And I would even argue I had taken a picture and showed that my kids were at I, when I voted in the last like local one. And someone asked me, like, why were your kids there? I said, well, if I want my kids to be people who vote, I need to show them or explain to them, like, this is why we're doing this. These are the things that we're voting for. And and. To be honest, some of the things you may not even have a, a large depth of knowledge about what that person does. But I even explained to my kids, you can go online, you can look this person up, or you can look at what this office does and then see how that impacts you as a person. Because that may impact um, your light bill, <laughs> your, your sewer bill that you're paying. It may impact your taxes. So these things matter. And to your point, there's so much coverage about national things. And yes, there are federal laws that do impact all of us. But the laws that may impact you the quickest are the ones that deal with your city or deal with your state. And those are the elections that people tend to miss. And then people are like, well, the president did this or someone national did this. Well, there's like there's a step in between that <laughs> that we missed. So if you wanted the national leader to do something, they may not have been able to do it because these state people um, weren't in place that wanted to push through um, that certain amount of policy. The other thing that's been um, big in news um, is the pronoun um, law that happened. And so for, for people that don't have context here in Indiana, a law was passed that if a child wants to identify with a different name or a different pronoun, that that information has to get home to parents within five business days. And it, it's supposed to be written. Um, and this, and as many of us know, you have the law. Then you have how the law is interpreted and how the law is implemented. And there really hasn't been, in my opinion, a lot of guidance around the implementation. So I'm hearing from many different schools, different approaches. My own son's school, I have identical twins, which most of you guys know. Uh, they're like, yeah, the principal talked to us about on the first day of school. We had a, the whole class came together, the whole seventh grade went to the cafeteria. He explained it to us and my kids were just like, okay, like they didn't have much about it, but in other places, people were really upset about the way they're going about it. So what are your thoughts around um, this particular law and the impact um, in the classroom? Because it is impacting um, in particular school counselors uh, jobs and um, your thoughts about maybe um, because this bill had things taken out of it. Uh, so it was. It did. Down. It did. So I don't so, know how yes. much 
you want to say about that whole process. But I would love to have your thoughts, especially because this is impacting teachers jobs, like what they're doing right now. It is. I mean, so, you know, um, this bill, uh, House and Old Act 1608, uh, it is really um, a study and what it looks like to have a vaguely poorly written bill. And because that's really what's happened is that, in, and you know me, listen, the principal in me, I want things to be precise. I want them to be clear and I want us to be fully understood, right? And this mm -hmm. bill does not do that. It says that if that if a student wants to change the, the word, um, a, you know, a, a word that they go by, it, it includes their nickname. So, and it does not require parental consent. So we need to be clear about that. Parents don't mm -hmm. have to agree. It's just that parents need to be informed. So, you know, if, if you've got a kid, Michael, who wants to go by Mikey, then those parents need to be informed within five business days of that choice. The other, the other issue with this, so it's creating a, an undue amount of work for schools right now, an undue amount of work, um, a lot of which is falling on social workers or guidance counselors who need to be doing other things. Um, but the other, the other issue with it is that um, it does not create a mechanism for students to change their mind. So, so the mm. school does not have to tell a child, you know, so if Michael says that they want to go by Michaela, the school does not have to tell Michael that they're going to call their parent or they're going to email their parent and put that in writing. And, and that was something that was really concerning to me, because if we say that in the state of Indiana, we want schools to partner with families, then we need to help them be partners with families and not get in the middle of families. Because if that child goes home and doesn't know that the school was going to call home and say, your child is requested to be called this different name or this different pronoun or what have you. Um, if that child doesn't know, then they walk through that door after school unprepared for the conversation that they're going to need to have with their family that day. And if we were truly working in partnership, then we would inform that child and then help give them resources to have a conversation with their parent, right? But that's not what's happening here. And so this was a, a rushed law it was a law that was very much watered down from a version of a Florida bill. So it was a copy and paste bill of some hateful mm -hmm. nonsense that was happening in Florida um, that got watered down here in Indiana and got pushed through. And we just can't do legislation like that. We have to remember that when we make a bill, every time that we make a law, that we are taking away a right of someone Every single law does that in some way. And so we we may say that we're trying to you know, increase the rights of parents, but are we taking away some of the rights of autonomy for children? And what does that look like? And we need to really think about that, really weigh that out, make sure we're talking to constituents across the state, because Indiana is very different across our 92 counties. Mm -hmm. Make sure that we get input from people um, across our 92 counties before we rush to make legislation that is really making life harder and really is not supporting families. And I appreciate what you said about getting in the middle because it does feel like people are getting in the middle. Because on one hand, as a parent, like, I'm like, I do wanna know what's happening at school, like whatever's happening at school. But yes. on the other hand, if my kid is caught off guard by a confrontation that I have with my kid, then that conversation is not gonna go well for my end or my kid's in, and then the kid mm -hmm. now has to go back to school. <laughs> now the kid is angry at school, as though now you're at school for the teaching and learning cycle. Kid is not trying to learn anything because they're just all caught up in like this situation. So, and in education, I feel a lot of times we do things to kids, around kids, for kids, without consulting uh, kids. Um, what are some other bills that you wish there were, um, whether they became law or not, um, that you wish there was more student voice in that you feel like students really got impacted maybe in a not so great way? Hmm. Well, I definitely think that there should have been more student and parent voice in, um, in the bill that allows um, state dollars to now be used to militarize teachers, right? There, there is a bill that passed that now allows for teachers to be trained to use and carry firearms inside of their classrooms in Indiana. And they can use state funds to do that. And there, um, you know, we had many students that were concerned about this that, that came in to testify. Um, but I don't think that we had enough student voice. We didn't hear enough parent voice on this. Um, you know, one of the big concerns is that parents do not have to be notified. They don't have to be notified that teachers in their children's schools are carrying 
firearms in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. And that's concerning to me. You know, if, if my child's science teacher or social studies teacher or PE teacher has a firearm on them in the classroom, I want to know. I want to know that people in that building, aside from the school resource officer, have now been trained. Um, and so that, so I think that that piece of legislation um, could have used additional thought and additional safeguards in place. I mean, we don't even have safeguards around uh, the types of firearms that can be that teachers can bring in around whether or not they're getting safety checks around whether or not they have to have gun locks on them. You know, there are these. Um, you know, just just some real issues around that, and and some students came in and expressed their concerns, um, you know, as well as parents. But again, I think that that was a piece of legislation that, um, you know, that, that was pushed through really quickly. For people that are listening or watching that don't know how to like really contact their senator, uh, because the legislative session typically happens in the middle of the workday. And so a lot of times people are like, when do I go if I can't go? I mean, I've been I've spoken at the state house and the time I went to go speak, um, I went one day and sat for four and a half hours for the bill to get called Two people testify. And they said we're breaking for a recess. We'll come back to sessions the next time. I was like, I've already taken off work. I can't come back tomorrow. So then when they moved along, I was able to come back later to sit another four hours to get and I can't remember how much I think it was like three minutes or two minutes probably two or three minutes yeah to get through my pre-written speech like as fast as I could and then answer any question that was asked and for most I don't want to say most that's hard that's hard for people to want to go speak on a bill and then you get there and a you don't know if you're going to be able to speak b you may have to come back and then C, you may not be able to say all the things you want to say because you are on a timer and they will they will say your your time is up. Your time is up. Like you got to yes. move. Um, so how, so how, I would definitely say, yeah, to get to to make sure that your voice is heard on a piece of legislation um, to call or email. I think that that is great. We, um, you know, along with our staff, we listen to every single voicemail. We uh, we read all of our emails. And we track that. So when I'm going in to, um, you know, to a committee hearing and there's a bill that's up, then I can see, wow, I had 37 phone calls um, about this bill from my constituents. And here's how this percentage of them felt. And here's how this percentage of them felt. Here were the key things that they were saying. Here are some printed out emails that people have sent to me. So I have all of that with me so that I really am keeping constituent voice top of mind in making a vote. And um, and that and that's what we do as legislators as legislators. And uh, so I think that's key. Call or email if you can come in to testify. Absolutely, you know, work to come in to testify, especially if it's something that you know you're really passionate about. Um, but whether you're calling, emailing, or uh, or testifying, always make it your personal story. And I think that that's really key. We get a lot of these form letters where it's like, okay, you saw on Facebook that if you type in your email address, it's going to send a mass email. Like, okay, that's one thing, but it's, it is much more impactful. You know, if you say to me, like, my name is Andrea and here's how this is impacting my kids and their school or my family and our community or what have you and make it personal, uh, because that is really where, uh, where the meaning comes in. And that's really where, um, we can be persuaded. And if you have other ideas too, I mean, you know, just because a bill is presented one way, doesn't mean, as you know, that that's the way that it ends up, you know, after it jumps right. through all the hoops for a bill to become a law and in Indiana. And so knowing that we have an opportunity to also adjust it. So if you have an idea of how to make it better, absolutely, um, you know, share that expertise and recommendation uh, because we can do amendments too. But yes, yeah, so definitely reach out. Too about making it personal because many times when I because out you don't even know how you get on these emails right and it's like yeah put your name here and send this in and I and in my brand I'm like they already they've got hundreds of these so now they, they know they read the one that says it so okay I can track that a hundred people sign their name to this but I don't really know what this meant to this person um, and that was one of the things when I wrote my testimony I talked to it was a school discipline bill I went to go speak about I talked about how they impacted me as a teacher. I talked about how it impacted me as a student in Indiana, and I talked about how it impacted my kids in Indiana. And granted, I couldn't say all the things I wanted to say, but I wanted them to know I wasn't talking like in the abstract out here. And then the other thing I was really intentional about, I said I was representing myself. 
And there were other organizations that I was down that were down there that day that I did work with at some point in time. And I even told them, I said, do not associate my name with you. And it had nothing to do with me not supporting their work. But I felt personally that I want to be her for Shantae Barnes. I wanted you to know this is my story. And I so I said all my stuff. And I was about to go sit down. And then people asked me all these questions. I was like, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. I was prepared, but I didn't really think I was going to get any real questions. But I actually got asked like really good questions. And I feel that um, people like you will, are more likely to ask a question when they feel like I'm talking to you about your experience, your story. And then I need to think about that. And then even before that, there was a... Uh, I listened to a testimony on another bill and it was a girl that had to choose between her, um, I believe it was her deaf school and a hearing school mm -hmm. and about how she really had to choose and how her services. So she was there with her mom and I just listened. So first of all, I this teenager was there and I'm like, man, she's really knocking it out of the park. So even to even see kids down at the state house, um, and to see them testify, I was just really inspired by that young lady to be down there talking about, this is how this bill is literally affecting me and my life right now in uh, in my school setting. Uh, and even that was interesting. So uh, I say all that to say, like, kids, you can go down to the state house. Of course, um, your caregivers, your parents got to work all that out. But um, they asked her a lot of questions. And um, I don't remember the outcome of that particular um, um, legislation, um, but I felt like they heard her like I've. Well, and I think your point about, you know, that the voice of young people is so powerful. It is so powerful. And so when it can come to the state house, absolutely do. You know, there were um, a couple bills last year where students were down there and they didn't get to testify, but they're in the hallway as a group of, as a group of students. And if you come, you know, in person, you can request with our staff. Um, that, you know, if you, you can write us a little note and it says, you know, okay, I want to see Senator Hunley. If she has five minutes, have her come out. And I met with lots of different groups of students that were there that way. So that, you know, even if you don't get your voice heard on testimony, at least you can talk to, you know, the legislators who are on that committee, um, you know, if provided they're available. The other thing too, is that, um, you know, young people, other, you know, other constituents to anybody, um, but I view, our youth have been doing this the most is they request, they request meetings and we can meet virtually, right? And so that's the other piece, you know, this summer I've met with, um, I met with students from Fort Wayne, Indiana, students from, you know, I mean, just different places because we can meet virtually now and so that they can share their concerns, share their legislative ideas. And so also remembering too that, um, that we, uh, you know, while we're only in session for part of the year, like your representatives and senators are working for you all year round. That, so that is great. So even adults, kids, everybody, because that's the other thing in society. Sometimes we don't give kids voice. I'm like, there are human beings that are being impacted. Um, like, cause, and, and I say, I always say to people, sometimes you go to a place and they're not child friendly. You don't have like a lower sink or a lower commode for a kid to use or the chair. You, so I'm like, we have children in society and even like the little things, the functioning things. So I get like really frustrated and having twins, like even with my husband, like I can't even go in, in the men's bathroom. There's not a changing table as if, you know, babies pop up with one person. Um, so even those little things of like, we don't even consider children, even when they're babies. So I'm very, very uh, adamant that we really need to get back to like, including all humans, um, whether you are a child, whether you're an adult, whether you are a more mature adult in your um, glory years, like everyone has these different stages. And sometimes I feel like maybe our elders get left out a little bit, or maybe our mm -hmm. young people um, get left out a little bit. So I had a question for you about educators. So if there's an educator watching and saying, I think I want to run for something, maybe school board in maybe the city I live in, or maybe I want to, you know, shoot to, to do something else. What things um, did you wish you knew as an educator before you went on this path? Because as you said at the very beginning, it wasn't that easy. Like it wasn't like this. So what are the things that people may not know about behind the scenes when it comes to politics um, or even running for office uh, that people really need to know and consider? Well, first, I would say to any teacher, current teacher, retired teacher, former teacher who is considering running for office, I would say do it. Absolutely. We need you to run because teachers make 
incredible legislators. They make great board members because we listen. We listen and we're bridge builders, right? Yep. We, we work hard to build consensus. We work hard to build coalitions. We work hard to solve problems in a collaborative way. We make fantastic, fantastic uh, you know, elected officials. And so I would say, first of all, run. Um, I wish I had known how much money it was going to cost, but I'm also glad that I didn't know that because I would have been intimidated to run. And mm. I, you know, I took the Obama approach, which is that I just had a lot of small donors. You know, the majority of my donors donated less than $20 to my campaign. And so, um, and so I'm glad that I didn't know how much I needed to get to. Um, but I'm also glad that because I had a wide network of support and people who are so generous, um, that I was able to get there. Uh, with small donors. I I am really glad that I did some of these um, candidate uh, and policy training programs, you know, through things like Who's Your Women Forward or Women for Change. I mean, there are so many of them ready to run, um, run for something as a national organization that I did work through. Um, for those who are interested in um, common sense gun reform, you know, like our Moms Demand Action, they actually have a program called Demand a Seat that helps to train candidates up to run for office. I did that program as well. So I did a lot of those types of programs. Um, and I I did not know how valuable those were going to be um, to me. Um, I I think that it's really important to, to work on other people's campaigns, you know, sort of volunteer to knock doors to get that, you know, practice. Um, and, you know, I also had the, the very unique privilege of being able to take a leave of absence from work to focus on running for office. And I know that not everybody has that benefit. And so I would say that um, that if you're going to be working while you're also campaigning, that you need to make sure that you have um, a really strong network of support. So whether that's to help make you meals or whether that's to help take care of children, if those are you know in your, in your home, um, but to make sure that you have a really strong network of support around you is really key. But at the end of the day, if you feel even slightly interested in running, if you feel even slightly motivated to run, know that we need you. Oh, and the last question I'll ask you about that. What are some considerations if you have a family, if you have a spouse, if you have children? Um, because even myself with my own children, there are things I, I may say or not say because I have my children. Because as my children are older, like sometimes um, I did something at their school. Um, I facilitated a conversation around this documentary and they're like, well, tell the principal not to say that you're our mom. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with like, they're just like, I just. And I'm like, but I think people know I'm your mom. Like, don't, don't just be announced as Mrs. Barnes or something. Don't, don't say like, we go here to this school. I'm like, okay. So what are some considerations that you would have to share with people about like running? Cause when you run for office, it's really public. Um, people may try to dig up stuff about your life. Um, Cause we know with campaigning, um, like I felt your campaign was awesome. I was I was inspired just by all the things that I saw that you did. Um, but I know that that can be hard when your family is involved, especially um, children. So what advice do you have uh, for people who have like other people that's in their family that by extension kind of puts them also a little bit in the spotlight? Yeah, I would say uh, two things. One, is, one is the Michelle Obama rule. When they go low, we go high. Always, always, always. And the second is don't feed the trolls. We do not feed the trolls. So the people that are online thumb thugging, trying to say stuff about me, like whatever, like I ignore it. I do not feed the trolls at all. And, um, you know, and I have to teach my my spouse to not do that as well. Um, <laughs> he's a little more, um, more concerned about that than I am. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an era where we just shake the haters off. And so I'm not worried about it, but you know, you got to have a thick skin. And then, um, you know, and I think that the piece with my kids is that I just made things optional for them. And so I've learned really early on in my campaign that I couldn't force them to come with me anywhere to do something, mm. um, and, uh, or dictate what they wore or any of those types of things. Like we just needed to be ourselves. And so then, you know, some events, one of my kids would come sometimes both of them, sometimes none, neither of them. Um, you know, sometimes they would want to go out and knock doors with me. Sometimes they wouldn't, you know, it would just needed to make things, um, optional so that they could feel as involved as they wanted to be. And same thing for my spouse and my parents. I mean, my parents helped me a lot. My mom is the queen of door knocking, um, but I also made it optional for her, you know, so that she could come when when she wanted to. 
Um, and at one point she knocked doors with me 42 days in a row. Like that woman is no joke. Oh, mom. Yeah. Yes. But, so, but I think though, just talking it out with the family and deciding what works best and just being authentic. I mean, I think that that's the biggest thing. Like we never pretended to be people that we weren't. Um, and so then you don't have to worry about if who you are when you leave your door is different from who you are when you enter it. And I also will say, whether you're trying to rub her off it or not, like don't feed the trolls is good advice for like everybody on social media, because I think we're all human beings. And so we all get triggered by certain things. And I've had the same conversation with my husband about things online. He's like, I can't believe I said, not today. I said, that's what the black button is for. That's what the mute button is for. I think we're not, we're just going to move forward. Um, but it can't, it can be hard. So, um, especially young people, because what you, you respond back does leave a footprint. So um, that's, that's probably my librarian hat in digital media safety and responsibility. So be safe out there. Uh, so, so final thoughts, what are your final thoughts um, for our audience just about policy, education, getting involved? Um, final thoughts. <laughs> I would say that, you know, the, the greatest thing that I learned, you know, in my, in my first session as a legislator is that over 90% of the bills that we pass are bipartisan, over 90%. And so a lot of the stuff that we, you know, talked about today or, you know, that we're hearing about are the things that are contentious, but that is a really small portion of, um, you know, of the work that we do. And so knowing that, um, you know, that I am so committed to being collaborative, that I'm so committed to working with my colleagues in the majority, because we've got to in order to get things done and in order to make sure that diverse perspectives are heard when it's time to create legislation, right? That is my job as I'm representing, you know, all of these people in Indianapolis is to make sure that their voices and perspectives are heard at the table. Um, and so I work very hard to do that. And I take um, this honor very, very seriously. And so it is an honor. I'm so glad to be here with you. And uh, my reminders are to vote, vote, vote. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator Hunley, for spending some time with us because senators are super, super, super busy. Uh, so I'm always grateful when I get people um, that sit in seats of power that represent us and I might say represent us well um, in the state house. So um, definitely have my continued support. Um, and thanks for all the advice and nuggets that you have shared. And I just want to speak life into you. Keep doing what you are doing because sometimes it, is, it does get hard. And sometimes we just need someone to say like, you're doing a great job and keep doing this. I say to you, Senator Hundley, you're doing a great job and please keep Thank doing you. what you are doing. And everyone else, we will see you on the next episode.